Welcome to episode 129 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, we are wrapping up this series talking about Jesus, the conquering Messiah. Let's dive in. Over the last two episodes, We've been walking through a mini-series by my good friend and mentor, Stephen Manley, through Matthew chapter 27. Now, the series is called Jesus, the Conquering Messiah. And if you haven't listened to those first two parts, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages because they kind of set the foundation for where Stephen is going today. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to Matthew 27 and listen to this part three of the series, Jesus, the Conquering Messiah. Matthew chapter 27, but it is an overwhelming chapter, uh, no question about that. And again tonight we want to look at some scattered verses that are uh, found um, in the chapter to give you a feel for what is taking place. It is obviously the Passion Week, we're into Good Friday, and he is dying on a cross. We are actually down to it. This is not teaching, this is not um, preaching before multitudes, this is not doing miracles, this is down for the purpose for which he came. We are not talking about cross style. We are actually in the throes of the living death, the cross style itself. I want you to look at verse 5 with me. Chapter 27, let's begin at verse 5. Judas is here. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's go back to verse 43. Scribes, chief priests, elders are speaking at the cross scene. Verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't really know, Jesus, if we are up to this. For if we really come to grips with what you are wanting, it will radically revolutionize our living and our lives and radical changes will have to be made and we will see things differently and priority structures will be changed and relationships will have to be rebuilt and are we ready for this? Oh God, do your new thing in us. Tonight, we pray thee In your name, amen. We keep harping on the fact that you cannot deal with any passage in the Word of God without dealing with the purpose of the book that it's contained within. Every single chapter, every single verse, every single word, every single paragraph has to plug into that purpose. Uh, Matthew did not write his writings like you write your writings. His makes sense. And they come together with great purpose and direction. And there's this overwhelming umbrella of purpose and everything that he's writing, every word he uses, he selects the scenes definitely. He's not writing a chronological order of the lifestyle of Jesus. He's not writing a daily diary of Jesus living. He is trying to deliver an evangelistic message. I like him. He's an evangelist. He's trying to deliver an evangelistic message to the Jews. 
And everything that's going on has to fit into that one single purpose. Now, obviously, if he has this one single purpose, he is thinking ahead about how the Jews will respond to this. If I write this and if I say this, how will they respond? What questions will they have? So he's trying to jump ahead of them and anticipate the kind of questions they're going to ask. He's doing that in chapter 26 and 27. Obviously, one of the questions, probably one of the main questions the Jews are going to have about this whole business of Jesus being the Messiah is, well, how on earth could Jesus be the Messiah and die on a cross? How could you be attached to God? How could you know the flowing power of the divine? How could you have divine blood flowing through your veins and be trapped, be captured, be drug off, be scourged, have your face just puffed out because it's been beaten, have your beard ripped out by its roots? How on earth could that happen to you if you were walking in the power of God? How could you die an embarrassment, the curse of the law before a whole world, if you were the Son of God, if you were living in the power of God, and you were the Messiah attached to God? Come on. Now Matthew's answering that question in chapter 26 and 27, because he's saying, you don't get it, do you? He's not trapped. He's entrapping. He's not a victim. He's a victor. He's not being conquered. He's conquering. This scene where he's beaten, where he's hanging on a cross, he's a... He's a victor, not a victim? Well, sure. Don't you know this is his plan? It's one thing to be weak and to be captured. It's another thing to be powerful and choose to be captured for a purpose. It's one thing to have a plan by which you are going to conquer an entire world and carry that plan out even though it means suffering. It's another thing to be the victim of things, that circumstances that happen to you that you can't control. It's one thing to be pulling the strings of the plan. It's another thing to have the plan be working on you. Jesus is pulling the strings of the plan. He knows what He's doing. He's sovereign God. He's working something out. He's pulling off a brand new deal. And He is not... Being conquered. Amen. He is in charge. And isn't it significant that all the way through chapter 26 and 27, here stands this Jesus, tall, straight, in charge, in control. Everything's going just exactly as he plans it. And little men are running around, nervous, wondering what they're going to do. Pilate's trying to wash his hands of the whole thing, and he doesn't eat, and he's sweating it out. Jesus stands, conquering king. In charge. Amen. That's the whole picture of chapter 26 and 27. Now when you come to chapter 27, of course, he really does something unique in the whole thing. And that is, he says, let's call in witnesses. And I love this because it's such a strange group of witnesses. Now they're not going to talk about what they've heard or what they speculate. They're going to talk about what they have experienced. They're going to talk out of the midst of their own experience using their own language. So this is not religious talk. This is not sanctified talk. This is street talk from guys like betrayers and guys like Roman governors and people like the Roman governor's wife and folks like the scribes and the Pharisees and those kind of guys, we're going to hear testimonies from people who hire other people to lie about him. And out of all of these testimonies, there's going to emerge these overwhelming concepts verifying the Messiahship of Jesus. Now, one of the concepts that we've talked about that spills out of these testimonies is the concept of the righteousness of Christ. The first witness. The betrayer. Judas himself. It's the opening testimony of the whole thing. And what is he testifying? Don't! Don't be deceived by what I did. Don't be deceived. I was wrong. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Don't you understand? Jesus does not deserve what is being done to him. I have been dead wrong. And when it comes down to the bottom line, I mean the actual bottom line of how I feel about this thing, now I see I have done the wrong thing. He's innocent. He is righteous. The Roman governor calls him the just man. His wife writes a note at the night hour saying, have nothing to do with this just man. He is righteous. 
Why is that so significant? Oh, you understand the whole concept, don't you? The reason it's so significant is because Jesus is going to die on a cross and transfer His righteousness to you. You who are filled with sin. You who have no chance to get out. You who will never do enough righteousness to cover what you have done. You who are so, who are so filthy from the inside out. Who don't have a ghost of a chance on this thing. He is going to take his righteousness and give it to you. And he's going to take your sin and take it on himself. And you are going to exchange your sin for his righteousness. And on a cross there is a transaction taking place. An exchange. And He is going to live His life through you. Amen. See, folks, Christianity is not you getting better. Christianity is Jesus living through you. Amen. Will you expect me to be like Jesus? Well, yes. Well, I can't be like Jesus. I know. Who can be like Jesus? Nobody. But Jesus can be Jesus. So Jesus is going to come and be Jesus through you. Amen. And you're going to die and He's going to live. And that's what the cross is. It's the exchange, the transfer of lives, what He is for what you are. You're nothing for His everything. What a deal. The righteousness of Christ. Now there's a second concept that emerges out of these, these testimonies that we have been looking at in chapter 27. Not only the righteousness of Christ, but the royalty of Christ. Now, there's no way to read chapter 27 without seeing the issue of kingship that just shows up constantly in every section. In fact, from the very beginning of the chapter, the whole accusation that the Jews are making against Jesus as they drag him into Pilate is, he says he's king of the Jews. That's revolutionary. That's against Caesar. That's the only kind of accusation that's going to get Pilate's attention. And when Pilate finds out Jesus is a king, he's going to go after him. And there'll be an execution and that will take care of that. The whole mockery of the soldiers hangs on the fact that Jesus is a king. Platted together a crown of thorns, a reedweed for a scepter, a royal robe scarlet, a discarded soiled royal robe in mockery as he was born. So now he's going to die. How was he born? King! Star in the sky. But how was he born? Cross-style birth. Not palace. Not fine perfume. The smell, the stench of manure in the stable. Cows watching on. Sheep gathering around. Grain tossed out of a manger so he has a place to lay his head. This is the birth of a king? Yes, he's going to die like that too. Again, a crown of thorns plaited together, not gold-plated, not sterling silver scepter. Reed, weed, not precious ointment to anoint him king. Spit! Matthew's trying to tell us something, isn't he? He's trying to tell us, don't you understand what's going on? This Jesus is setting up a kingdom, and this kingdom has a style, and it's cross-style. See, this Jesus is not after pomp and glory. This Jesus is not after popularity and something for himself. This Jesus is not out for what he can get. This Jesus has one thing on his mind. How can I give my life? How can I help you? How can I pour myself out? He's got his sleeves rolled up. Servanthood is his style. It's cross style. He's not living for himself. He's living for others. And he was constantly calling his disciples to do that. Come on. What are you doing living for yourself? Well, I'm not bad. That's not the issue. Good and bad is not the issue of Christianity. Jesus died on a cross and took care of that. Good and bad is not the issue. People don't get into heaven because they're good. If they did, the Pharisees would be the head of the line. People aren't kept out of heaven because they're bad. If they were, the thief on the cross would have never made it. The issue is not good and bad. The issue is, hey, what are you doing living for yourself? You can't do that and be kingdom people. I'm calling you to cross style. I'm calling you to lose your life. I'm calling you to spill yourself out. I'm calling you to roll up your sleeves. 
I'm calling you to get into the kingdom where the way to live is to die. Want to join me on a cross? He said. Now the third concept that begins to emerge out of this, out of these testimonies, these witnesses, is the relationships of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, the royalty of Christ, the relationships of Christ. And the first relationship we want to talk about is obvious. It's in verse 9 at the beginning of the chapter. And I want to talk to you, he says, about the relationship, his relationship to Israel, his family. How they valued him. His relationship to Israel, his family, how they valued him. Now, when you look at verse 9, the opening statement is the key. It gives it all away. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now, anybody who studied the book of Matthew kind of leans back and says, well, there he goes again, because he was always doing that kind of stuff, you know. He was always taking prophecy and inserting it if there was the slightest possibility uh, of explaining what Jesus did in terms of prophecy. Matthew leaps at the occasion. He doesn't miss one of them. Why? He's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was and is the kingly Messiah. And Jesus fits the bill perfectly on prophecy. It's like he wrote the prophecy himself and then went out and acted it out. Because he's in charge, you know. And he's not a victim of circumstances. He's manipulating the circumstances. And he's fulfilling prophecy down to the minute detail. And listen, he is a perfect, absolute, down-to-it match for prophecy. And when you put the prophecy of Messianic prophecies on this side, Jesus just lines it all up on this side, and you look and say, hey, same fingerprints here. And that's what Matthew's doing in verse 9. Now, you know the scene of verse 9. Of course, they've come to Sanhedrin at the crack of dawn. They've drugged Jesus out of where they've been keeping him for a few hours in Caiaphas' house. They're now taking him over to Pilate to get Pilate out of bed and get the judgment of crucifixion. So it's in the wee hours of the morning, just the crack of dawn. Light has just dawned. Judas is standing there, sees the whole thing, sees what's going down, feels this internal remorse, and suddenly he's moved to undo what he's done. Thirty pieces of silver. Isn't it ironic? He hasn't even spent it yet. Not one coin. Still has it. He comes, he comes and says, Hey, take it back. I want to undo this whole thing. Take it back. And the chief priests and elders laugh at him and say, That's nothing to us. They go on their business. And out of, out of this overwhelming remorse, he takes this bag of coins and throws it. Can you see the bag breaking? Say, can you see the coins jingling as they roll on the floor of the temple court? Oh, can you see dignified men in their robes scurrying around, chasing these coins, gathering them up. They've got them, all 30 pieces now. Ah, oh, we've saved them. But there is a dilemma. What are we going to do with them? We'll put them in the offering plate. No, you can't do that. Why not? Well, they're, these coins are blood money. The price of blood. I wish I had time to talk to you about the overwhelming hypocrisy of legalism. Do you, do you see it here? Here are religious men quibbling over, well, we can't take this 30 pieces of silver and put it back in the treasury. Well, why not? Well, it's the price of blood. Well, you took it out of the treasury. These very coins came out of that offering plate. Well, yeah, but we can't put them back. Well, and while they're quibbling over what to do with this money, they're leading the Son of God, the Messiah, out to crucify him. That's okay. But you can't put this money back in. Want to talk about some of the things we fight over? And while we're screaming ye loud and yelling at the top of our lungs about certain, certain activities, we go right on hating each other in the church and don't even blink an eye, brother. 
And while I couldn't serve on your board and smoke cigarettes, I could hate my brother and serve on your board. That'd be okay. See, legalism is overwhelmingly filled with hypocrisy. Wow. Well, we don't have time to talk about that. So what are they going to do with this money? They decide to buy a potter's field with it. Now, the potter's field was probably a field that was there close to Jerusalem and probably had been uh, the man who owned it, obviously, was selling the clay off of the field. Potters would come, buy the clay, go make their, their wares. And finally, the field had been depleted of its clay and now was worthless. And so they got it really cheap, 30 pieces of silver, 15 bucks. They bought the field. Why have they bought it? They're going to bury strangers in it. You understand, people came from all over the world on a spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Hey, no family may be with them. They just came by themselves, died in Jerusalem. They are strangers here. Nobody to take care of them in their death. So they're buried in this field. And it's ironic that Matthew tells us to this day, he says, at the day of this writing, this field is called the field of blood because everybody knows how it was bought. Now, you'll note out of that, Matthew turns then in verse 9 and says, Then was fulfilled, because of all of this, it was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now, when you really study this prophecy, you discover that most of it comes out of Zechariah. Some of it out of Jeremiah, but most of it out of Zechariah. It's really a combination of Jeremiah's prophecy and Zechariah's prophecy. Well, why didn't he mention Zechariah? Well, because Zechariah was the minor prophet. Jeremiah was the major prophet. So all you're getting here is Jeremiah. But it's really the heart of it is found in Zechariah. Now, the interesting thing is that Zechariah was a type, a symbol of the Christ. You see, what was going on is that the people didn't think much of Zechariah, the prophet. Oh, when he was a shepherd, they didn't think much of his shepherding. Didn't think he had much skill in shepherding. And then when the shepherd tried to be a prophet, they all laughed at him and said, Hey, the guy just isn't much of a preacher and certainly isn't much of a prophet. In fact, they made fun of him. You know how they made fun of him? They paid him. They made fun of him by the way they paid him. Want to talk about the preacher's salary at this point? Probably not. They made fun of him by the way they paid him. They decided we'll pay him. 30 pieces of silver, which was a joke. Because you see, all his ministry, the way it's valued to us, it's so valueless, it's so cheap, it's so insignificant to us, we'll mock him by giving him 30 pieces of silver for his wages. It was a joke. The Lord told Zechariah, take the 30 pieces of silver, go back down to the temple and throw it to the potter who was beside the temple making his wares. The prophecy. Now, there's a lot of details in all of this, but you understand that the central point of this particular prophecy is how they valued the ministry. That's the point. How they valued the ministry. Did you note in verse 9, the key word is the word price. Who was priced? The word priced means uh, esteem, look upon, value, how they valued him. Jesus was valueless, worthless in the eyes of Israel. He was only worth 15 bucks. Now, I don't have to convince you that this is true because anybody who knows the story of Jesus' ministry knows that this kind of emphasis rings throughout the entire gospel account of his ministry. For instance, Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, he shows up in Nazareth, his hometown, and how do they view him? Well, they look at him and say, hey, we saw him when he was a little kid around here making mud pies. Now he's, well, we know his background. He's an illegitimate child. What's he doing coming around here acting like some big time prophet trying to tell us? And Jesus could do no 
mighty works in that town because of their unbelief, because they treated his ministry as worthless. You remember Matthew chapter 11? Jesus was giving woes, three woes on the three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. And what was that all about? He did most of his mighty works in those three cities. And how did they treat his mighty works? Put their nose in the air. They were more interested in their coffee breaks and more interested in their business and more interested in who was going to buy and sell and more interested in their fishing business than they were in any budding Messiah yelling at them on a street corner. And they treated his whole entire divine activities right in the middle of their midst as worthless. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus told parables. They were pinpointing, piercing parables about this kind of thing. He told parables like the wicked vine dresser. Lo and behold, the vineyard was turned over to these wicked vine dressers. And then the servants came and they were to give, their, give the portion back to the owner and they wouldn't. And then he sent his son. And how did they treat the son? He was worthless. The king, oh the king, was going to throw a Wedding feast for his son. The invitations were, this is the king. The invitations were sent out to all of those who were chosen. And you know how they treated that invitation and the whole wedding feast. We don't have time. Listen, our farm work is more important than any old king and his son and any wedding. And listen, our, our, our own little activities and our own little business and our own little interests. And they treated the king and the wedding and the festivities and his son as worthless. Let's talk about us. How valuable is he to you? Oh, I want you to be sure you get the question because I know immediately our reaction is, oh, Jesus is valuable. No, the question is not how valuable is he because our, all our response to that question is, Jesus is valuable. He's the most valuable, precious King of kings, Lord of lords. We all understand that. Jesus is valuable. We all agree to that. We know that biblically. We know that theologically. We know that intellectually. We have reasoned that out. We can quote all of that. Jesus is valuable. We understand that. But the question is, how valuable is he to you? Well, uh, preacher, you, you got to understand, I've got, I've got eight hours, eight to ten hours on my job over here. I got to go to work and make a living for my family. I have to pay for the, the t seventh TV set. You know, I, I got to do that. And I got to make a living for my family. So it's 15 minutes for Jesus in the morning. And then it's eight hours of, at my job making money for myself. What? And you want to tell me that Jesus is the most valuable item in your life? Well, be reasonable. What do you want me to do? Quit my job? No. How would there be any money in the offering plate to pay me if you did that? <laughs> Nobody's saying quit your job. Well, you just said 15 minutes for Jesus and 8 hours. No, it's the perspective on the job that's wrong. Why do you work? Well, I work to make money. Why would you think I'd go down to that stinking job every day if I wasn't to make money? You think I'd drag myself out of bed and go down there? I can hardly wait to get out of this place. You missed it. Right. You missed it. Amen. See, your focus has been on the job. See, it's been Jesus 15 minutes and the job 8 hours. You didn't understand that Jesus strategically picked you up, strategically located you in the middle of that job force, and you are not there to make money. Oh, he's so good. You get to make money on the side. Yay. But you see, the deal is not making money. Well, what's the deal? Don't you know you're a missionary sent by God, and you are here focused on him, and the whole eight hours, it's not 15 and Jesus. 
15 minutes on Jesus and 8 hours at the job. It's, ladies and gentlemen, the whole flow of Jesus in your job. And you're a full-time pastor to the workforce. You're to find out who they are, where they live, knock on their doors, invite them over for supper, get next to them. Hey, you're a full-time pastor. And everything you think your pastor should do for you, you are to do to them. So you see, this isn't just the job. This isn't Jesus and the job. This is Jesus in my job. Amen. And it's not 15 minutes for Jesus and 8 hours for my job. It's 15 minutes and 8 hours for Jesus. Amen. See, that's a perspective. Right. How important and valuable is Jesus to you? Well, it's 15 minutes for Jesus and then I, I have to have about 8 hours worth of sleep. What? 15 minutes for Jesus and 8 hours for yourself? And you tell me he's the most important thing in your life? Well, what do you want me to do? Stay up all night and pray? Well, that would hurt some of you a bit. <laughs> But no, I understand you have to have sleep. We all understand that. But you, 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 it's a perspective, you see. For it's not 15 minutes and 8 hours at the job. It's 15 minutes and 8 hours for Jesus through my job. And it's not 15 minutes in the morning for Jesus and 8 hours of sleep. Wouldn't it be something if you started fellowshipping with Jesus before you went to sleep? And lo and behold, you woke up and were still fellowshipping with Him and found out you did it all night. And you saturated your whole life. So it's 15 minutes for Jesus in the morning, 8 hours in my job for Jesus all day, and 8 hours of sleep at night for Jesus, and it's all saturated with Jesus. That's a perspective, you see. Well, you don't understand, preacher. It's 15 minutes for Jesus in the morning, and, and it's 8 hours to do the things I have to do, you know, relaxation. And, you know, it's 8 hours for my job, and 8 hours for myself, and 8 hours of sleep. That's my day, 24 hours. And, and it's 8 hours of relaxation, and 8 hours of things you got to do. you got to fix the faucet and the flat tire, and you got things you got to do, you know, normal living things. You don't expect me to quit that, do you? And you don't expect me to sell my boat! Listen, I didn't say a thing about a boat. Don't get uptight. So it's 15 minutes for Jesus and 8 hours for myself and relaxation and the things I need to do. No, no, you misunderstood. Don't you see that I'm to take him out of the 15 minutes, out of the prayer closet. He wants to fill me and he wants to be intimately... Oh, can you imagine getting my next door neighbor on that boat out there on that lake and I got him pinpointed man and I can talk about Jesus. Woo! And he can't get away. <laughs> can't you see using... But that's a perspective, you see. And what he's calling us to do is to die to ourselves so that Jesus really is the most valuable... If you were a group of young people, I would say things like this to you. I'd say, if you would think about Jesus as much as you think about sex, think of what kind of Christian you'd be. See, the question is, how invaluable is he to you? In the church recently, we were in revival and they meant, the board meant, can you believe this? The board meant in the back of the Sunday school room to discuss the, whether we were going to have the evening service closing night of the revival. Why were they discussing it? Super Bowl Sunday. Praise God, they decided to have the service. What? What bothered me was the subject was even brought up. Because we came to the service, but we could hardly wait to get out of there to go over to so-and-so's house to have the, have the Super Bowl party. So it wasn't that we had the service 
or didn't have the service that mattered. It was the internal, what we were focused on and what really was, what does. See, and you know tonight what down inside of you burns. What is really of value to you? What really, you know, don't you? And that's the issue here. And who's going to die? Who's going to throw their life away? Who's going to give themselves up until they have nothing important to them except Him? Who's going to end up with only one love? Love for Him. Who's going to have only one turn on? Him. Who is going to value Him more than you even value yourself? I don't know who's going to do that. But I know when you find one, you will have, I know what you can call them. You can call them Christians. Amen. Because that's what one is. Now there's a second relationship that shows up in this passage. Not only his relationship to Israel, his family, how they valued him, but the second relationship is his relationship to God. His father, how he trusted him. Now, this is verse 43. No, the relationship we just talked about, of course, was negative in its impact. This one, oh, I like this one because this is positive. His relationship to God, his father, how he trusted him. Now, you know the setting, of course, in verse 43. The setting is Jesus is dying on the middle cross. you got a thief on this side and a murderer on this side. The holy heart of God is being stripped naked before a whole world. And milling around are all of the, is the wickedness. He's surrounded by the wickedness of man himself. And the mockery is taking place. Now, you remember that the mockery is not lies. They're telling the truth as they see it. They didn't make anything up. Here's their mockery. Well, verse 43, he trusted in God. Well, that was true. And we've talked about that, haven't we? He trusted in God, but get the rest of it. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Do you get the impact of that? He trusted in God. Here he is dying on a cross and he trusted in God, even said he was the son of God. Now, isn't this ridiculous? If God is really his father and God really will have him, then why doesn't God deliver him? I mean, if he was really blessed of God, he wouldn't be dying. Listen, if he was really the son of God, he wouldn't be hanging on a cross. Listen, if God was really his and if he really did trust in God when it came right down to it, God would have come through and this would have never happened because when you are blessed of God, you don't die on crosses now folks that philosophy is not new that philosophy has been around for a long time in fact you can go back in the Old Testament and find that philosophy you remember in the day of the judges here's a guy by the name of Gideon the Midianites have overrun the country Judea and the Israelites I mean they're really under it hey their crops have been looted they, all their garden produce has been taken they're about to starve to death their cattle have all been run off the enemy has just looted them blind and here's Gideon a young man of Israel and he's down in this low spot called a wine press and he's finally gotten together a little bit of grain and he's trying to get the chaff out of the grain and blowing he should be up in a high place where the wind blows but he's down on the bottom, you know, and he's trying to blow this chaff out of there. And over on the stump is an angel saying, Gideon, God is with you. You know what Gideon's immediate response is? What? you got to be kidding. Don't you sit over there and try to tell me that God is with me. Listen, I know how people act when God is with them and they don't get down in a low wine press trying to get a little grain, a little chaff out of the grain to get a little bread. Listen, when God is with you, you ride. When God is with you, you conquer. When God is with you, the armies flee. When God is with you, you prosper. When God is with you, everything goes right. Don't you tell me you don't. When God is with you, you don't die on crosses. Don't give me that. See how easy it is to slip into that philosophy? We've been suckered into that in the evangelical church, hook, line, and sinker. When God is with you, what happens? You don't have car wrecks. 
Oh, I hope that isn't true. When God is with you, you don't get cancer. What? When God is with you, you pay your bills. When God is with you, don't suffer, bleed, and die. Everything goes all right. But here comes a Jesus who is giving a total, absolute, opposite view. He's saying, when God is with you and you're filled with God, you know what you do? Cross style. When God is with you, you know what you do? Bleed on crosses. When God is with you, you know what you do? You suffer and spill your life out. When God is with you, you know what happens to you? You take on the hurt of the world. When God is with you and you're filled with Him, you roll up your sleeves and serve everybody else. You don't get served. When God is with you, you don't get recognized for your true value. When God is with you, you help recognize everyone else. That's different. Well, wasn't that what he was? He trusted God exclusively. Amen. And lost his life. He risked his whole self to the discomfort of God's plan. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. What we've been talking about is God wants to do a new thing in our day. And He's calling for some people who won't hang around and say, Well, God bless me. He's calling for some people who will say, Oh God, take me out and let me get in the middle of the discomfort of your plan. Who's going to lose their life? Who will come out of their comfortableness? Who will quit using God for themselves? Who will become available to be used? Who's going to get really in the middle of this redemptive stuff? Who's willing to join him in cross style? Another relationship. The relationship, his relationship to Israel, his family, how they valued him. His relationship to God, his father, how he trusted him. Oh, and this last one. His relationship to you, his friend, how he loves you. Some of you are going to have a hard time with this. It's okay. Just think about it. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour. This is the hour of crucifixion. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now folks, there's pain in that verse. When you walk in the middle of that verse, you feel the vibration of pain emanating out of that. Because here in verse 46, you're seeing how far Jesus will go for you. Now, there's a linkage between verse 45 and 46. Uh, Back up. Look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Terrible, terrible darkness filled the sky. Now, up to this time in this whole passion scene, we haven't heard from heaven. Hey, they drug him out in the night hour. Heaven isn't heard from in the trial. Hey, they beat him after death in their wild, frenzy, demonic activity. We haven't heard from heaven and all of that. They drug him off to Pilate. We didn't hear from heaven over there. The soldiers have got him in the praetorium. We didn't hear from heaven over there. It's about time heaven had something to say about this. Heaven was always speaking. Oh, heaven spoke at his birth. Angels filled the sky and sang the song. Heaven, oh, there's the star depicting 
the brilliancy of his birth. Heaven spoke at his birth. Heaven spoke at his baptism. Clouds parted, dove descended, brother. Voice said, this is my beloved son. Hey, we heard from heaven there, brother. Oh, we heard from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah came down. Can you see it? And they're all floating in midair. And heaven is speaking. And the shadow of God's presence overcomes the whole place. And his voice says, this is my beloved son. And heaven speaks, brother. We even heard from heaven in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angel came down and ministered to him in his weakness. But we haven't heard from heaven on this scene. But you're going to hear from heaven now. The heavens are filled with darkness. God's light has been eclipsed. And Jesus says, Oh, He's forsaken me! Now you ain't want to say, Well, Jesus was deceived. God hadn't really forsaken Him. He was deceived. Then I want to propose to you, if He was deceived in verse 46, maybe He was deceived in the Sermon on the Mount too. Or maybe you want to say, well, Jesus, when he said that, he was just mistaken. It wasn't. It was just the uh, physical feelings that he had. It just overwhelmed him. The suffering overwhelmed him. And he just felt that way. But he was just mistaken. Well, a friend, if he was mistaken here, how can I be sure he wasn't mistaken in some other places too? And I don't know what you want to do with verse 46, but when you read it, you have to say, Jesus thought he was forsaken of God. You know what the word forsaken means? It means to leave out. It means to let down. God the Father walked out on him. It doesn't mean cease to love Him. Hey, there's no breach of love here. It isn't that the Father didn't love Him. It isn't the Son didn't love the Father. No, it isn't that there was any rejection on Jesus' part or any rejection. No, there's no rejection going on here. The Father walked out, turned His back on Jesus. What does that mean? You have finally shown up. In the passage. That's what it means. You finally got your face in the page. That's what this means. What are you talking about? We've been talking about transfer. The righteousness of Jesus in intimacy with the Father. Guess what's happened? He has taken His righteousness and given it to you. And He's taken all of your wickedness and taken it upon Himself as if it's His own. And sin has now drawn a wall, pulled a curtain between Him and God. And God walked out on Him because of you. Amen. This is your fault. Hey, Jesus, you've talked cross stuff. You've talked denying yourself. How far are you going to go? Would you surrender your right to riches? You told the rich young ruler to go and sell all he had and give to the poor. Would you do that? Hey, he's doing that. He's hanging on a cross. They stripped him down naked. They've taken his robe and divided it up, and they are casting lots for it. Hey, Jesus, would you surrender your right to popularity? Would you do that? Well, friend, he did miracles and held the crowd right in the palm of his hand. But hey, he's not doing that now. He surrendered that right. There's no question about it. He's dying on a cross. He surrendered the right to that. Would you surrender your right to physical comfortableness and ease? Will you get rid of your rocking chair, Jesus, and your footstool? 
Well, obviously he surrendered that. He surrendered it all. No, he's not surrendered at all. There's one thing he hasn't surrendered yet. There's one thing, the most precious of all. There's one thing, one thing that he's had from eternity to eternity. One thing he's never been without. One thing he's counted on every minute of his ministry. And it's his relationship with his father. He's always had that. And now... He's surrendering that for you. Now, friend, do you think a Jesus who will go that far for you is going to just let you come down here and bump your head once there and twice there and feel better and say, Whoo, thank you, Jesus, for the free ticket to the sky. Off I go by and by. Don't you understand? He's laying claim on you tonight. You cannot live for yourself. You have no right to. You are not your own. You've been bought and paid for. With a great prize. Jesus... Don't let us off the hook on this. As you surrendered your right to riches and materialism, so you have called us to surrender. As you surrendered your right to fame and popularity, so you've called us to surrender. As you have as surrendered your right as the fame of a, as a teacher, so you have called us to surrender our rights to our fame as you surrendered your right to physical comfortableness and embraced suffering so you have called us well i hope this mini series has just been edifying and encouraging to you as you build your life around jesus next week i'll be back from the holy land and i plan to do a review and a reflection of our time there so i'm very excited about that well Thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 129 for episode 129. And until next week, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.